You're listening to Your Practice Made Perfect. Support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals. Brought to you by SVMIC. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect. I'm Renee Tidwell and I will be your host for this episode. On today's show, we will be discussing the field of behavioral health and psychiatry. We're going to cover a broad range of information, including the effects of the pandemic on behavioral health, some of the challenges we are still seeing, and the stimulant shortage. Joining me today, we have behavioral psychiatrist, Dr. Craig Clark. Welcome, Dr. Clark, to our show. Good morning, Renee. I'm pleased to be here, and thanks for um, having me. I feel flattered. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Before we get started, though, would you give us a little bit of information about yourself, maybe including how long you've been in the field of behavioral health? Well, I started my career training here at Vanderbilt in, in psychiatry in 1987. And in 1989, the state of Tennessee saw fit to license me. I don't know if they lived to regret that or not. It's a, <laughs> quite, a, quite a journey for me over all these years. And uh, I started out in the combined program in neurology and psychiatry and found my way to child psychiatry. And I've practiced child psychiatry and worked with folks really across the lifespan since 1989. I currently own my own practice with my lovely wife, Amy Powell Clark. She's a child psychologist. We and I own National Neuropsychiatric Associates, and we're blessed to be here on Music Row with a whole cadre of mental health professionals, psychologists. We offer comprehensive mental health services that integrated here on Music Row. So it's been quite a journey. Sounds like y'all have got a lot of experience to share with us today. To get us started, let's begin with a more generalized question, like what are some of the successes and challenges you faced in the field of behavioral health? Yeah, as a chronic uh, optimist, you know, I try to avoid the the Pollyanna label, but as a chronic optimist, you know, I would say we've we've really had some incredible successes over the years in the behavioral health field and the field of psychiatry. I was at a lecture not long ago where an expert in neuroscience made a bold statement, which I think is accurate. Something to the effect that we learned more in neuroscience and psychiatry in the last 40 or 50 years than we learned in all of humankind's existence prior. And I think that's true. There are all sorts of exciting things that have come. Uh, you know, we could never have imagined things like neuromodulation techniques when I first started my training. I joked in a lighthearted way with patients. I told them when I started my career, there were three medicines and two of them you didn't want to take. So we've seen the proliferation of psychopharmacological options, we've seen neuromodulation come, we've seen, you know, really the technology look under the hood. I think one of the criticisms of psychiatry and a just criticism has been that, you know, the only medical specialty that didn't examine the organ that it treated, and that was because there were the technology to do so didn't exist, and so that technology's come along and that's opened up this neuroscience field so much. Psychotherapeutic techniques, you know, expansion of understanding of the basis and foundation of how psychotherapy works and including studies that integrated the neuroscience of psychotherapy to inform the strategies that are used. All just, just incredible things. The challenges that really come primarily, as I'm sure many of my colleagues out there would agree, come primarily in the form of managed care and efforts to sort of pigeonhole or put the, the square peg of psychiatry into the round hole of general medicine and to try to impose artificial limits on the number of times patients are seen for evaluation or consultation. 
you know, time limits on, on therapy processes and things that are developmental by nature and therefore are slow to unfold. Those have probably been the biggest challenges because it limits access for people, and that's, that's never good. I'd imagine those challenges have changed since the pandemic. I'm sure prior to the pandemic and post-pandemic, you know, it was tough on everyone, physicians, the general public. Now that the pandemic is coming to a technical end, are people emerging stronger, not as strong? What are you seeing? Well, I know I personally have felt much better since May 12th. It it was a few days before (laughs) my birthday, and it just cheered me up tremendously that it was over. That was a good day for you then. It was. It was a good day. I'll get inside. I think that the pandemic was really hard on people emotionally. I can verify from a front row seat on the whole mess that it was not fake news, that there was this enormous uptick in people seeking referral or seeking treatment for depression and anxiety in particular. And again, you know, like thinking about things in a broader scope, you know, we're social animals and we're meant to be with one another. Right. And when we isolate one another, it does bad things to us and it does bad things particularly to the limbic system. If you think about it from an ethological standpoint, from an animal biology standpoint, that characteristic to be drawn to other people and to want to be in the company of other people was undoubtedly selected for historically in development because it allowed you to survive. If you were, you know, out on your own, it was, it was not a good thing. One of my basic tenets is everything you need to know in life can be found in Forrest Gump. And the famous scene when Forrest says, I ran and I ran and I ran so fast and so long that I was alone. And I realized that's a bad thing, right? So I think a lot of people were really struck with how that isolation lit up their limbic system, set in motion, high levels of depression and anxiety. And of course, the uncertainty. It's easy to forget now that it's over, quote, quote, over. It's, it's easy to forget that we didn't really know how bad it was going to be. And again, one of the most anxiety-provoking things for human beings is uncertainty and ambiguity. And it could have been a whole lot worse than it was. And it was terrible. So I think all of that combined, and then honestly, people being at home and being in one another's company, the intensity that brought, the emotional intensity of being in that that sort of crucible of this confined space with all this intense emotion, I think that also sent a lot of people for consultation and it raised people's awareness of, you know, one of my favorite jokes to tell patients is my wife, Amy, taught me that of us are perfect observers of ourselves. So when we're in the company of our loved ones, they may have been observing things and they've been saying, hey, Craig, you know, like, what's with this irritability or what's with, why aren't you sleeping or whatever in ways that we might have otherwise, uh, they might not have seen or we might have otherwise in the world. Absolutely. I know that a lot of these challenges haven't necessarily just been erased since the pandemic ended. Are there any ongoing challenges that you're seeing as we emerge out of the pandemic? I think there there are, and I think they're both direct, they're related directly to the pandemic itself and some of the pandemic aftermath, and then there are there are some that are more indirect. It's easy to forget that there's this thing called long COVID and you know it affects people psychologically and emotionally. You know, I have some patients in my practice who have long COVID and they're chronically fatigued, they're depressed, they're anxiety ridden. Many of them have had their lives functionally taken away from them. You know, I have some very high-functioning folks that I work with who now are affected by long COVID, and their whole life has been changed by the fact that they, they don't feel, they don't have the vitality, the energy, they can't go out and do the things that they used to do. And this has been a cause of major negative impact on their 
identity and their self-concept and self-esteem. It's caused conflict with their loved ones, as you can imagine. Yeah, so there are direct effects like that, and obviously the pandemic is a huge stress that was set in motion, you know, the aforementioned mood and anxiety struggles for so many people. And then, you know, the, the indirect just, I think it went from being an abstraction that something terrible could happen beyond your control that would impact every aspect of your daily life. That was an abstraction, and then suddenly it became a reality, literally overnight. You know, one day we're right. in condition A, and the next day we're in condition B. And those kind of abrupt changes are always hard on the human psyche and on, on people emotionally. I also think that the isolation of the pandemic and all the psychological and emotional consequences also tended to exacerbate underlying medical problems that many of my patients had. You know, they, they not only would come in with their complaints about their uptake in depression, and I saw patients who I hadn't seen in 10 or 15 years knocking on the door again. I like to say they've been released into the wild, meaning they were doing well, and needed my services, you know. And they showed up again with recurrent symptoms, and a lot of those patients also showed up with problems with their blood pressure being elevated, their diabetes out of control. Again, the mind and the body, not two things, one thing. So it's a two-way street that goes between these things. And so all of that would be indirect consequences. And then limitations in the ability to access the care. I can't tell you how many patients told me they didn't go. Like, we're able to do virtual. I mean, you know, I can talk to you like I am now, and I can do a therapy session, especially with people that I knew well, or you had me right. a session, I could do it over a telephone call or, you know, the internet on a video call. And, it, you know, it's not as good as in person, but it gets you 95% of the problem. Versus, you know, people who really needed medical care, where they needed a physician to examine them and lay hands on them and do things that just weren't possible to do remotely. And then the fear, especially some of my older patients, about going to the doctor's office and being exposed to COVID is very real. And rightfully so, they should have been scared about being exposed to COVID. You know, we lost multiple patients. Well, and, and I think just from being at home and then you're kind of more in tune to any type of symptom you may have leads to this fear and anxiety that you were talking about. Especially for people who weren't used to having anxiety or anything like that, it's kind of hard to figure out how to process that. And then, you know, you as a psychiatrist have probably known this, but I feel like it's been more common knowledge since the pandemic, kind of you were talking about that brain body, that they're not two separate entities, that they work together. And I think that that for me, especially just kind of becoming more aware of that through the pandemic, that when your mind is struggling, your body can't process things the way that it's supposed to process either, which leads to those ongoing health issues that you just referenced. We could devote a whole episode easily to just, just that, that small aspect of it. Because the other thing that's easy to forget is that, you know, so from day one, square one, you know, patients come in here and we pride ourselves on we're not the pill-throwing doctors. That's not what we do. And so we talk to patients about lifestyle things, and we really believe that integrative treatment is the superior path. And so from day one, we're talking to people about diet and exercise and sleep hygiene and all these kind of things that are, you know, kind of get the biological trains running on time to help people be successful with their treatment to form a firm foundation for that pharmacological or psychotherapeutic or neuromodulation intervention that work best for them. And at the end of the day, all of those things were disrupted. I mean, you know, going to the store to purchase the food, people didn't want to make too many store trips. So they're maybe buying less fresh food. They can't go to the gym. The gym is closed, right? 
you can't work out, you can't do your normal routines. Your sleep is disrupted because everyone's in, in one place and the kids no longer have a, a school day in the standard way or you no longer have a standard work day. And so you get out of routines there. All of those things negatively impact not only the brain, but obviously the, the body. The body as well. Absolutely. Right. What are you as a psychiatrist, do you see any challenges specific to you in your field that you're facing since the pandemic? For the field, I think one of the things that's happened is, especially in the world of child, I think uh, you guys can fact check me on this, but I, I think child psychiatry is still, if it's not the number one undersupplied specialty, it is at or near the top of the list in terms of the number of child psychiatrists we'd like to have out there practicing and seeing folks and available to the community versus the number who are actually, you know, in practice and, and available for consultation. So I think that the demand that was already high in that arena in particular, again, it just went precipitously upward and literally overnight, you know, precipitously upward. And so accessing, you know, a lot of people call here and they can't, you know, find a... a it's a long wait. <laughs> yes, very long wait. And so I've worked for a very long time without the assistance of nurse practitioners or those kind of folks. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've added them in part because we kind of have to. I mean, some of that is no offense to our nurse practitioners who are wonderful, by the way. But it, we were compelled to get more providers if we wanted to, to continue because there's only so many folks as a psychiatrist you can see. And, you know, you have follow-ups that are necessary and then just the sheer number of calls or, you know, Dings, you know, we're getting from our website, you know, that kind of thing, compelled us to, to make more services available. And even with that, the weight can still be substantial. So I think a lot of our policyholders and listeners can relate to what you're seeing in psychiatry with this uptick of patient volume and calls and the need due in part to the fact that they probably went several years without focusing on these things out of fear and anxiety of what they may or may not catch out. So I definitely think that's something that is true for psychiatry, child psychiatry, and across the board. And like you said, we could probably dedicate a whole episode on this, but I want to pick your brain a little bit more. Let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about treatment. Can you give us a brief overview of some of the treatments you provide for your patients? Well, I guess, you know, I'm a bit of a dinosaur having been at it so long, but I, in my training, we were really taught this notion that psychiatry was not just psychopharmacology, that it was also about psychotherapy. So I started my practice that way and I've continued to practice that way. I personally see therapy patients on a regular basis. Obviously, you know, at my age and stage of the journey, I'm in a little bit more of a leadership position here at NNPA, but, you know, supervising our team and nurse practitioners and whatnot. But um, we provide, as a, as a practice here, we provide, obviously, you know, psychopharmacological consultation or medication consultation. We provide psychotherapy both individually and in groups. We have people who are trained and qualified to do couples, you know, counseling and, and family therapy. And then the, maybe a little bit unique to our practice, we've been at the neuromodulation thing for quite a while, you know, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. We offer that here uh, for treatment of refractory depression and OCD. Uh, there are other FDA indications for that, including interestingly smoking cessation. We haven't really, uh, you know, been down that path, although I think obviously from a public health standpoint, that would be such an important thing to address is uh, nicotine addiction and, and smoking cessation. 
on the neurofeedback training, which, you know, has been around for a very long time, has kind of come into its own. I think it's growing in popularity because of the demand for alternatives to the traditional medical treatments, particularly for ADHD that have some inherent limitations. The drugs themselves have inherent limitations, and then the limited utility of psychotherapy and ADHD. So having some other tool that can potentially address those concerns. We, we have protocols for TMS, or TMS protocols for ADHD rather, that are not yet FDA approved. I, I think it's only a matter of time until we have that. Again, we pride ourselves, I, I tell patients every day, when you come here to see us, the right hand knows what the left hand's doing. And we ensure that that's the case by virtue of having formal meetings three times weekly to coordinate patient care, which I think is a little unusual. We really do work as a team. It's not a week, week, not, not team. We really, we, we aren't right. people in one building. <laughs> we're, we're actually sitting down. In fact, later today, we'll sit down and we'll have an hour-long meeting with the team where I'll hear about new patients that have come in or if anyone's really struggling and we'll put our heads together. You have a wonderful PhD psychologist here, Warren Kelly, who's an expert in OCD. My wife has 25 years of experience as a psychologist. We've got some neurofeedback technicians. We've got all sorts of folks here. We've got our wonderful nurse practitioners, Elizabeth and Kara, very skilled people. And so when you come see us, you get the benefit of all those heads. You know, it's not just Craig's head or Kara's head or Elizabeth's head. It's uh, all the heads, you know, kind of circle around to try to help you and your family. I like that. It feels like having those meetings like that and the different providers and different types of experience all coming together. It sounds like y'all have got a really unique way of providing the best care for your patients. Dr. Clark, I know it sounds like y'all are really busy, um, as most of our listeners are really busy. I think we've hit on that, but it sounds like y'all have kind of come up with this really great plan that works for your group and works for your patients, but I'm interested to know with your busy day-to-day schedules, how did y'all come up with that plan and then successfully implement it? So really, we have, really have the team meetings, you know, of the, the clinical staff meetings just built into our schedule. So we do two of those three meetings uh, during lunch times on Tuesday and Thursday. I alluded to that earlier, and I'm going to walk away from here, see one more patient, and then have a clinical staff meeting where we have you know lunch served and everyone's sitting around a large table and you know, we get a few bites of their sandwich in and then we say okay who's new this week and who's struggling and you know you know who do we all want to give a high five to when we see them down in the waiting room because they're making such nice progress and so you know and obviously a lot of times that's going to be focused on youngsters or adults for that matter who are really struggling mightily or some of our patients you know, because we do treat a lot of treatment refractory depression and OCD, we have, you know, patients who are really, I mean, they've been through, you just can't even imagine, I mean, literally dozens of meds, literally half dozen or more stabs at different kinds of psychotherapies or other non-traditional treatments. And so we have some people that are, you know, have treatment refractory illness. And so I think one of the things that I hear from patients the most gratifying to me about coming here is they'll say, you know, I really felt as if I feel as if you guys have, you know, worked as a team to try to help me. And so we accomplish that for two times a week, like I said, Tuesday, Thursday. And then we have a separate supervision meeting for the medical team. So we have nurse practitioners with me once a week for an hour. And then my wife takes the therapy team once a week for an hour. And so we eat that cost. I mean, that's a very high cost, as you can imagine. 
But we really just do feel that it, it improves the quality of the care that we're giving people who come see us. I don't pretend to know everything. Like I, I guarantee you some of the nurse practitioners who are younger and more proximal to the education or academic environment, they, they carry things from that that I don't and I wouldn't know. And obviously, after you know, 30 some odd years doing it, I've got some experiences I can share with them. But likewise, you know, the psychologists and the therapists bring a different perspective to things. And the more perspectives, the better, from my, from my view. Uh, I think that like one of the things I've always found odd is that psychologists and psychiatrists, there's been this kind of schism between them, and there's a certain amount of, like, I don't know, competition that goes on. But I don't see it that way. I see it as like both bring valuable things to the table and they're, and they're synergistic when both sides really appreciate the other. I feel like you providing these lunches and times to talk through things, that may be more money up front for you that you're losing because you're paying for lunch, you're losing patient time. But the opposite side of that is I would think, especially for some of your you know younger providers, Having those conversations to be able to kind of download a little bit, debrief, get feedback, I would think would also lend itself a little bit to employee retention or provider retention as well, because you're providing this aspect for them that they may not get somewhere else. One thing I think we've been hearing a lot about around here is the pharmaceutical side, the stimulant shortage. I think regardless of if you are a family member or on a stimulant, it's hard not to turn on the news and hear about this great stimulant shortage right now. So I wanted to take a minute to ask you about that before we wrap up. Are there issues with patient access? What issues are you seeing regarding the stimulant shortage? Well, you know, as a child psychiatrist in the course, I mean, uh, stimulants are used for many other indications. But, you know, one of the most common conditions that will bring people to the clinic for a child psychiatrist to be ADHD and Still, after all these many years, and there are other great options, thankfully, more arrows in the quiver, as they say, you know. But at the end of the day, the stimulants are, they sit atop all those algorithms for a reason, you know. They're right. effective, uh, they're time proven to be safe, you know, we know all their ins and outs, we know all their shortcomings and warts, we know how to massage the best out of them. So people sort of like to start with stimulants. And then it's easy to forget, you know, stimulants are also used to augment antidepressant response. They're used in sleep disorders, like narcolepsy and other kinds of sleep disorders. To enhance cognitive function in people with, you know, cognitive decline or early dementia, I can go on. And I think there are a number of things that kind of came together to produce the current predicament, which is better, but still a significant issue. I think there were just supply chain things that happened during the pandemic. That's the one that everyone can, oh, must be a supply. It, it is, I think, to some degree. They're also not common knowledge, maybe, is that the government imposes limits on how many, you know, amphetamine capsules or methylphenidate extended release pills are allowed to be manufactured in a given year. And so if you had a situation where there was an uptick in demand, a lot more people were referred, a lot more people were therefore prescribed. There was some dubious prescribing going on online. Some of you may know about that. It's another episode too, where where you know you could do text conversations and get prescriptions for stimulants. I mean, all, all sorts of you know tomfoolery and shenanigans you know that happened. So the number being made didn't change, but there was this enormous uptick. And again, I, probably a lot of it very legitimate. Just to be clear, I, I think that bulk of sure. But then that was aggravated by these other situations. So that that happened. 
And then just kind of bad timing, you know, I think the primary provider or manufacturer of one of the most commonly prescribed, you know, Oros extended release methylphenidate, I'm sure somewhere there was an actual part with that company, the tablets were made in the same factory using the same machine. One was sold as a brand and one was sold as a generic and the cost of golf was enormous. And I'm sure some actuaries said, why are we cannibalizing our own business? And so they quit doing that. And so that also made the price soar. So there's been all sorts of layers to this. And of course, on our side of it, one of the biggest problems is the patient calls us and says, my pharmacy doesn't have my stimulant. Can you tell me where to get it? And of course, the answer is, no. <laughs> you know, and, and this is not a satisfying answer. And I understand that. Like, you know, start calling pharmacies well, like as if they're just sitting around, you know, twiddling their thumbs, nothing else to do. A lot of folks didn't understand that we have no way to know what pharmacy has which medicine in stock at any given moment. So the only real answer. And we actually went so far as to compose a document that we would send out to patients, sort of walking them through some of these things and giving them some tips on what to do when their when their local pharmacy was out of the medicine because we were just inundated with these requests, uh, which again also consumed a lot of time during the day. As you know. Do you feel like it's calmed down a little bit now? It doesn't get a bit better. At one point, it was an all-day everything, particularly right at the very end of 2022 in the first number of weeks of 2023. Yes. That, I think, it seemed to have crested at that point. It's not back to where, you know, you write the prescription and you, you, know, you move along in a carefree way right. the rest of your day. Right. But it's not like we were getting, I mean, no joke, it doesn't pause that. Sometimes we won't. Thank you for giving us your input on that. Um, I feel like we've covered most of the issues you're dealing with right now because of the pandemic, but is there any specific part of the population you're seeing these issues impact more than others? Well, you know, again, the selection bias is a real thing, so I'll acknowledge that. We work with a lot of young people, and one of the things that, not that, not that isolation or being apart from others is good for you or me, and just for the record, everybody listening, Renee's much younger than me, so as is me. <laughs> I do have young kids, and I have an idea where you're going with this right now. So younger children, and especially, honestly, yes, younger children, but even arguably more so, you know, one of the jobs of adolescence and young adulthood is finding your peeps. And you need your peeps at that age and stage. Yes, you do. To accomplish things that you that can't be accomplished without them. And so when you're isolated from them, it deprives you of the fuel that you need for your development. And some of the people who suffered most, I mean, obviously, like I said, we had, I had some patients who were my age or beyond who died. So they suffered most. Their families suffered most. But some of the patients who suffered most Otherwise, were young adult patients who were graduating high school, going off college, and told, "Oh, good news! You can stay in this dorm room and never come out." And well, literally, I had patients who were who tested positive for COVID who were being put in hotels, and they were dropping off a bag, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for them outside the door, and they were told not to leave their hotel room. Shunned, essentially. Yes, I mean, really. I mean, if you again, you sort of look back on it, and you think. Wow. But again, in fairness, we didn't know. We, we didn't know what was going to happen. Fear also drives you to do things. And we, you're right. We didn't know. Right. And there could have been a lot more people dead. You know, we, we didn't, we didn't know. It could have been a That's lot right. worse. That's right. It could have been multiple stories. 
I really appreciate you being here with us today. It's been super interesting and informative to me and timely just in the space that we're in right now, kind of we're past the pandemic, but are we? We're still hearing about it. So I really appreciate all the information you've shared with us today. Before we wrap up, is there any last minute information or wisdom you want to share with our listeners? Well, I want to thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation as well. And it is, it's interesting, like, when people ask these good questions, it just reminds me of so many things that, that, that we've been through, you know, obviously pre and now post pandemic, but also just the, the journey is kind of fun to talk with you about thinking back to 1987 and arriving here in Nashville, which was a very different city back then and <laughs> all that we witnessed. But no, we're, we're here on Music Row, you know, our practice is Nashville Neuropsychiatric Associates and every day I wake up, I think, how did I get so lucky as to be in this place in this time and get to do what I do with these wonderful folks. And I truly am grateful that I was given this opportunity. And so I try to keep my mind focused on that. And if the day gets a little long or it's a little stressful, I try to remind myself how blessed I am, including blessed to be able to talk to people like you and hopefully share some of this crazy journey with, you know, other folks and help them make their days better and their, their lives of their practice and their family and their patients better. So thank you for again for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listeners, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. A big thank you to Dr. Clark for being with us today. As always, listeners, you can reach us by phone, email through our website. And with that, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect. Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice, as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time.